Hi there. Welcome to the HR Hub. Uh, it's formerly HR Shop Talk. I'm your host, Andrea Adams. You want to learn about HR, you've come to the right place. You get insight about most aspects of HR through my conversations with HR leaders. You can also find me on YouTube. Today, my guest is again, Dylan Snowden. Dylan is a lawyer here in Calgary with Carver Waite, and he helps employers deal with these super tricky issues. He's also a member of the faculty at the University of Calgary, where he teaches employment law. Hi, Dylan. How are you? Hi, Andrea. Thanks very much for having me. Well, thanks for coming back. And we tackled a difficult one last time. We're going to tackle another difficult one this time. And I can think of 10 more. There might be more. Anyway, let's just go with the duty to accommodate today. Um, can you just give us an overview of the duty to accommodate in an employment context? Sure. So when we talk duty to accommodate, uh, really that arises out of an employer's obligation under human rights legislation to provide a workplace that's free from discrimination. So at a practical level, it means that employers have to make significant efforts to accommodate employee disabilities. Uh, that can mean spending money to adapt a workplace, it could be temporarily reassigning an employee, changing a work schedule, reducing demands, granting a leave of absence. Uh, there is no list of what an accommodation can be. Uh, it can be anything in a different situation. Uh, accommodating an employee means getting information about what an employee can or can't do, what things they may be limited in doing, and then examining all the options and how those needs can be accommodated with the least impact on the employer. Disability is just one area that might trigger the duty to accommodate. So can you just go through some common and surprising conditions under which the duty to accommodate might be triggered? Yeah, I mean, the most common accommodation situation is a minor sick leave. So an employee has a, an illness, that's a disability. They need a few days off work to recover. That leave of absence from work is the accommodation. So employers are uh, accommodating employees and meeting their duty to accommodate all the time without thinking about it. Right. Uh, and so because recovery from a flu or cold is so common, employers know what to expect. Uh, they understand how the employee is feeling. The accommodation is a minor inconvenience to the organization, but it's, it's one that's expected. Um, so sort of the next level up, the easy, the next easy accommodation is the broken leg. So the employee was skiing, broke their leg. Okay. Even if an employer has never had a broken leg themselves, they understand it. They know what to expect. It's like, oh, there's going to be uh, a few weeks of non-weight bearing, probably some level of, uh, difficulty with some mobility we might you know it's like oh how many stairs do we have in the workplace are we going to let this person work from home uh, with their foot up what are we going to do but that's a pretty easy accommodation uh the more difficult um situations uh tend to be i guess disabilities that i think employers struggle with the most are mental health and chronic medical issues where the treating physicians aren't able to confidently forecast what accommodations will best work uh, or how long they'll be needed. Mm. So employers can become discouraged or exasperated when they're continually adjusting or extending an accommodation plan with no knowledge of when regular work can resume. That's the most difficult. Um, 
So, of course, employees suffering with a disability themselves, they're also likely to become discouraged or exasperated in those situations because it's, it's difficult for everyone. Uh, what about accommodations that uh, don't have anything to do with a disability? I don't know, religious. Are those common? What's the most common other type of accommodation we need to make? Yeah, so under human rights legislation, we have set enumerated grounds. Um, mm. So probably the next most common uh, employee request would be on the basis of family status. So we oh. don't have a disability, uh, but we have family obligations. So uh, aging parents or young children, of those probably managing the aging parents is, uh, is more difficult okay. from an employer's perspective. Because, again, it's sort of what's what does the employer anticipate, what's normal, and then what are challenges that people might face that aren't what the employer sees on a regular basis. Okay. Employers are going to see um, managing family status issues with young children all the time. Those are frequent and, and generally pretty minor requests. Employees requesting some form of accommodation like uh, I need my Wednesday, Thursday, Friday afternoons off for the foreseeable future uh, because those are the times when I can't get any other care for my parents and someone has to be with them. And so then the question becomes, is this a reasonable accommodation request to make? What steps has the employee taken to, to try and find something that doesn't impact the workplace or impacts it less? So there's a lot of information gathering in part because it's for an indefinite period of time. We don't know how long that's going to happen. Usually, if we're dealing with uh, a child care issue, it's relatively short-lived. I mean, even if it's a year or two long, it's like, right, but then this child situation is going to change because they're going to be going to school or going to a different daycare or something. So even with sort of long-term child-related factors, they're not that long. Whereas dealing with other family status issues we can end up with an indefinite period accommodation that can go on for many years. Thinking about that, uh, the family status one, just because this is something that came up for me recently, the employee said, I can't afford childcare or I can't afford the childcare that would enable me to uh, keep better hours. Does the employer have a duty to accommodate there? I think any time an employee is requesting an accommodation under a protected human rights ground, the, the duty to accommodate has been engaged. So the employer has that obligation to, to at least take a look and, and make some decisions, gather appropriate information. So what is the accommodation being requested? Is it reasonable or is this employee just expressing a preference? Is it a real need? Um, I think it really depends on the circumstances. I mean, there are some famous cases in Canadian law where uh, employees have documented, it's like, right, here are the 47 child care centers within a 10 kilometer radius of both my home and my work, and none of them operate during the hours you expect me to work, right? If we've got sort of that type of situation, then very likely we're going to say like, oh, right, some form of accommodation is reasonable here. Like this person has made significant efforts to find childcare and there's just nothing compatible with what the employer is trying to assign to the employee. Yeah. Whereas if you've got an employee who says, oh, well, there's only one uh, childcare location, it's the one next door to my house, that's the only one I'm willing to consider. 
um, that maybe we don't have an employee that's properly engaged the, the employer's duty to accommodate yet. What are some examples and maybe unusual examples of accommodations that might be uh, required in the employment context? Yeah, I mean, often employees and employers jump to a leave of absence. That's their first idea of how some problem, disabilities are obviously the, the absolute biggest, so I think that's what I'll focus on. Okay. Um, but a leave of absence is rarely in an employee's best interests. So statistically speaking, the longer someone remains off of work, the more difficult it is for them to return. So usually the best option, even if it's not a preferred option, is to have an employee doing what they can through some form of modified duties, modified schedule. So that could be shortened hours in a day, fewer days per week, increased breaks. Modified duties can also be a temporary move to an alternate role. Accommodation can also involve providing assistance uh, or modifications to the workplace. So having someone assist an employee with parts of their work can fulfill the duty to accommodate. Yes, now the employer is paying sort of two people to do a portion of a job that they were only paying one person to do before. The question is, is that an undue hardship or is it just a little bit of a regular hardship? And the legal obligation is that employers may be required to endure some form of hardship that's just part of having employees. So accommodation plans, I think one of the things that uh, a lot of employers get stuck on is, okay, we got this medical note, this person can't do X, and the doctor says for two months. And so employers say, okay, well, what are we going to do for the next two months? Well, it might be less. It might also be more. So accommodation plans need to get reviewed on a regular basis and then changed to meet the changing needs of both parties. Because mm. the employer's needs and abilities can change as well, right? An, an employer who has 20 employees, one of whom is requesting accommodation, is an employer in a different situation than if they had 10 employees requesting a, an accommodation. Mm. So the employer's circumstances can change. The ability to accommodate can change. What is undue hardship is also a, a moving target. So part of the plan when forming an accommodation plan with employees has to be planning to change the plan. And so having that flexibility built in, I find is super important. It's, it's always good to have a review that looks at when are we looking at changes to a medical situation or an employer's ability to continue that accommodation plan. Um, when are we going to create the new plan? Is it going to be in two weeks, a month, two months? It really depends on the circumstances. What's the employee asking for? You know, if they've got a doctor's note that says, I've broken my leg, I need to be off work for two weeks. Okay, fine. We'll review it in two weeks. You've got someone that says, oh, I've been diagnosed with a variety of mental health disorders. Uh, my doctor says I need at least two months off unknown after that uh, because we're going to be trying some medication and starting the medication, having the medication actually take a consistent effect, being able to evaluate whether that is working mm-hmm. and puts me in a place that I can return to work. The doc says it's going to take two months and then we'll see. Okay, the plan is you'll be off work for two months because that's what your treating physician says is required and modified duties aren't going to work in this circumstance. Um, But in two months, we're going to circle back and we're going to get new updated medical information and we're going to try and get you back to work either in full or partial capacity. And our plan is to adapt the, the accommodation plan throughout. And usually the sort of the, the end of an accommodation plan is a return to work plan. It's like, okay, how are we going to get this person back to work? Is it a graduated return to work? 
it's unusual for an accommodation plan to just start and then just end. Usually it's a, a gradual phasing out, right? Someone's slowly coming back to work. It's right. You were on a complete leave of absence. Now you're going to come back 20 hours a week for a couple of weeks, 30 hours a week for a week until you're back to full time or whatever is happening. Okay, so next, probably fairly obvious question, which I'm sure you're already moving into, is how does an employer determine what accommodation is required? Yeah, employers are in a bit of a tough spot. They either have to rely on notes from a treating physician, or it can be notes from their own independent medical examination on what an employee's limitations and restrictions are. Um, The vast majority of times we are dealing with notes from treating physicians, Very often those notes provide insufficient information, largely because the treating physician doesn't know what are the requirements for this person's job. They might know what the individual told them, but that may not be accurate or complete. So uh, very often we are, from an employer perspective, going back to employees, asking, can you please take this to your treating physician and have them fill out this more detailed, longer form? So what things can this person do partially? What person is this person completely restricted from doing, both physically and mentally? How long do we expect those things uh, to be underway? Are there any uh, other impacts of treatment uh, on the workplace? So there are definitely restrictions on information that an employer can ask for, but the employer is entitled to get information as to what is this employee able to do or not do in respect to the workplace? Mm-hmm. So once those limitations and restrictions are known, the employer can then make a plan for what would both meet those needs and be in the best operational uh, position for the employer. So an important note is that accommodation plans by their nature are dynamic. So while we're always looking at how they should be changing and how long it's going to be going on until it's reviewed and adjusted, we're also looking at are there different options? Uh, do you see employers who, you know, they get a list of restrictions and they find the worst possible work that fits with those restrictions? And does do they people get taken to court for that? Yeah, so I'm, I think an accommodation needs to be reasonable in all the circumstances. And it needs to be something, so if we're giving uh, modified duties to an employee, these need to be appropriate duties for this employee. So we're not taking a a senior executive and moving them to the janitorial staff as part of an accommodation. Oh, you're feeling stressed out from being an executive. Well, no problem. We have a low stress job for you here. I'm not sure that that would be an appropriate accommodation. Okay. And it goes the other way as well. We need to be able to put employees into a role if they're going to be taking on modified duties they need to be able to be successful in that role. So we can't give an employee, oh, you're a member of the janitorial staff with a broken leg, no problem. Uh, the marketing manager is uh, is actually uh, left, so we need you to fill in there. Well, this is a person that has no management or marketing experience. They're not gonna be able to be successful in that role, even though it doesn't require that they're, they be on their feet. So technically, You know, is this an appropriate accommodation? Well, no, it might be an appropriate accommodation, but not for this person. I think that's part of the balancing act as well. Okay. All right. What are the potential consequences? And I know they're significant, but the potential consequences for an employer who does not accommodate 
an employee. The failing to properly accommodate a disabled employee obviously can result in significant financial penalties. Um, so legal expenses, uh, administrative time being spent dealing with complaints and lawsuits, the, those I think can all be summed up financially. Uh, there's reputational harm to a business that can happen as well. Um, so human rights tribunals uh, make their decisions public. So an adverse finding against an employer is public knowledge. I think it's uh, it goes a little bit unreported. Um, you know, obviously, someone like me is in reading these decisions and is aware of who the good employers and who the more to the point who the bad employers are. But it can also happen. I mean, the human rights tribunals have uh, pretty extraordinary powers. One of the big ones is reinstatement. So sometimes we get those circumstances where, oh, it took five years for this employee's complaint to be heard. The tribunal decides that there was a discriminatory termination of employment. It says, okay, well, you owe them back wages for the last five years. Also, you need to give them their job back, which can be a pretty awkward circumstance. While the, uh, the financial penalties are the big one that everyone focuses on, there are other sort of reputational and just operational um, right. outcomes that employers can view as uh, wanting to avoid. Right. I would think also, you know, uh, impacts on the culture um, and the impacts on the other employees who are watching this and wondering, well, what happen happens to me if I ever get sick? And, yeah, it would be uh, very surprising if refusing an accommodation was more convenient or less expensive than just meeting legal obligations. Yeah. So employers sometimes get stuck on, oh, well, we don't want to do that. That seems hard. It's going to that's going to take a bunch of effort on my part. Right. But it's going to take so much more effort to deal with the human rights complaint and the lawsuit that's going to come if you don't do your work now. So yeah. doing that work passionately on the front end is generally just so much easier for everybody. This is a strange question, but can an employee be made to pay for their own accommodation? I can't think of a situation uh, where an employee would be required to pay for their own accommodation, but, but I think there could be situations where an employee might elect to contribute financially, uh, you know, in order to achieve their preferred accommodation. Oh. Uh, so, for example, um, an employee with a hearing loss might decide to purchase their own hearing aids uh rather than engaging in some more complex accommodation that could be provided in the workplace right so it's oh this person has hearing loss okay from a safety perspective we need to set up some you know we can't force this person to wear hearing aids so we're going to set up lights and we're going to set up warning systems and we're going to set up sensors and the employee might say i'm just going to get hearing aids actually to deal with this um and so you know, that might be expensive. And so maybe the employer says, well, we're not, that's not an accommodation we're going to provide. And the employee says, well, I'm, I'm going to do it on my own. Yeah. And th that's a win for everybody. Okay. You get your preferred accommodation and it helps the employer out. Great. Sounds good. But sort of strictly speaking, I don't think an employee can be required to participate financially in an accommodation. Final question here. How can an employer minimize the risk of a successful claim for their failure to accommodate? Sure. It's easy. Uh, the best tools are ensuring open communication and engaging in thoughtful planning. Um, and really, that's what, what it comes down to is don't make snap decisions. Sl slow things down. Think about things. 
and communicate openly, consistently. Um, employers that make assumptions about employees are the ones that tend to get in trouble. Uh, employers that don't have complete information and barrel ahead with something quickly tend to be the ones that get in trouble. Part of the thoughtful part of that is uh, when coming up with an accommodation plan, I like to tell people to come up with 20 options. And then we use a combination of the best three. And the purpose of coming up with 20 ideas is to break out of the first idea. The first accommodation idea often gets stuck in someone's mind, both employees and employers, right? It's, oh, I got this doctor's note. I think I need three months off. The employer says, well, it looks like we could just do modified duties and assign you to desk number four. And they get stuck there. We have two people that think that a good accommodation plan is one thing. And the answer is probably it's neither of those. It's like, have we really gone through a creative exercise to think about what really might work best for everyone? Um, and so coming up with 20, and it's a creative exercise, right? Okay, accommodation option number one. We rent a helicopter once a day to bring the, right? It's like, right, okay, not financially feasible, but we're now, we're coming up with ideas. We're making- we're brainstorming. Yes, we're brainstorming and coming up with potential ideas outside of just the first thought that occurred to us. Right. Um, I think that employees who understand their rights um, understand that the employer has to balance those rights with other operational needs uh, and employees that know the employer is doing their best to help them in a difficult situation is much less likely to claim that the employer has failed to meet their legal obligations. So employees who are informed and are able to participate in a flexible accommodation plan can become the most loyal and valuable supporters of the organization. Uh, that can be a great outcome for everyone. Well, thanks, Dylan. I love that bit of advice at the end that employers who barrel ahead are the ones who are most likely to run into trouble. I have seen that so many times, but we've reached the end of this episode. Thanks for listening out there. We'll catch you next time when I talk with another insightful guest.